I'd like for you to turn to that special vision that's recorded in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This sermon takes two servants to preach, so I'm going to preach as far as I can get before everybody leaves, and then I'm going to finish it up tonight, wherever we stop. I'd like to have just a little more on the lavalier if I can, but without the, the feedback. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphims stood above Him, each having six wings, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. The Old Testament prophet was a lonely man. He was chosen and signaled by God for a very painful task. He was not an earthly philosopher who left his writings for the scholars to debate, nor was he a playwright writing novels for public entertainment. He was a mouthpiece of the cosmic king. The record of the lives of the prophets reads like a history of martyrs. The life expectancy of an Old Testament prophet was about like that of a marine lieutenant in combat. So that when it says of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, it is clear that he stood in a long line of men that God had called to such suffering. The curse of the prophet was was loneliness and solitude. His home was often a cave. The wilderness was the traditional meeting place that he had with God. Because he did not get his message from the consensus, he got it from the lonely solitude of the wilderness where he met the Lord. Nakedness was often his wardrobe, a wooden stock his necktie, and he composed his songs in tears. Such was a man, the man, Isaiah ben Amoz. Isaiah was the prophet of prophets. He was the leader of leaders. As a prophet, he was unique in the sense that most prophets were called from humble origins. They were fishermen or peasants or farmers. 
Isaiah, however, was a man of royalty, of nobility. He was a recognized statesman in the royal courts. He consorted with kings and princes. The thing that separated a prophet from any other man was his call. He did not apply for the job. He did not get his call from men. He had to be chosen directly and immediately by God Himself, and the call of God was sovereign. It could not be refused. Jeremiah sought to refuse the call to be a prophet, and God abruptly interrupted him and said, You are consecrated from your mother's womb, man. And after a term in office, he sought to resign, and God refused to accept his resignation, for you just don't quit being a prophet. It's for a lifetime. You don't retire with pension. The call of Isaiah ben Amos was unique. It was glamorous. It occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. We know what time that was. It was in the 8th century. Uzziah was, a, was a, one of Judah's better kings. He was no David, of course, but neither was he an Ahab. He became king when he was 16 years of age, and he reigned for 52 years. Imagine that. In the last 52 years, we've had the administrations of, of Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon and, and Ford and Carter and Reagan. And yet, in Jerusalem, it was not uncommon for a person to live his lifetime under this one king, Uzziah. A godly man at the beginning, he sought God, and God blessed him. He won some tremendous battles against the Philistines and other nations. He built strong towers in Jerusalem and strengthened its walls. He dug massive cisterns in the desert and expanded agriculture, and he lifted the military might of Judah to a point almost equal to that of David. But the last years of Uzziah's life... When the priest refused Uzziah the privilege of functioning as a priest in the temple, he was enraged and he lashed out in fury against the priest and God struck him with leprosy. The record says that leprosy came on his forehead and in his hands and over his body. In the last years of Uzziah's life, he lived in a little house next to the palace and he died a leper. But in spite of this ignoble death, when he died, the whole nation was plunged into mourning, and so was Isaiah ben Amos. He came to the temple to mourn the death, not only of his king, but of his friend. And he came to seek comfort, and he got more than he bargained for. For when he came to the temple that day, something dramatic happened in the life of Isaiah. This event, of which I've just read, perhaps one of the most recognizable passages in the entire Bible. And as I was thinking about what should happen as we prepare for revival, it suddenly swept over my mind, this is what ought to happen. Now this passage divides into two natural divisions. There is a vision and a voice, and it repeats for emphasis. There is a vision and a voice. Watch it with me with your Bible open. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah went to the temple to mourn the death of the king and discovered 
that there was another king on the throne of Judah forever, the ultimate supreme king. For behind and above this empty throne was a throne that is never empty. I think we need to remember this, that God never empties thrones in our hearts and in our homes and in our nation and in our church without being ready to fill those thrones with Himself. As a matter of fact, sometimes God empties these thrones of our life in order that He might fill them with Himself so that suffering and sorrow are often preparation for a vision of Him. I saw the Lord. I need you to notice something with me. The word Lord in verse 1 is spelled with a capital L and then the little lowercase letters, little O-R-D. And they stand in contrast with the spelling of the word Lord in verses 3 and 5. Now that's not a typographical error. Verses 3 and 5, they're the big cat words, letters, L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's not a typographical error. The translator wants us to understand that there are two Hebrew words that are rendered by the English word Lord. When you see the word Lord with the lowercase letters, it's the word Adonai. It's really a title for God. It's not His name, it's His title. As a matter of fact, it's the supreme title for God. It means absolute supreme sovereignty. But where you see the name or the word L-O-R-D in caps, it's the name for God. It's the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. It's that sacred name by which the Jews knew God. It was the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And there's a tremendous reticence and reverence for that name and its use by the Jews. He won't even pronounce the name Yahweh. When he writes it, he will not write it as it's written, as it's printed, as it's spelled. He uses only the consonants. It is a sacred, revered name, the, the name Yahweh, the Supreme God. Now there's an example of this usage. It's the 8th Psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The first Lord is in caps, O Yahweh, O Jehovah. The second Lord is in little case letters, Adonai. O Lord, our Adonai. O Lord, our sovereign. Now we talk about Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is his name. President is his title. It is the highest title of the highest office in the land. In the land. When he says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, he saw the God who is supremely sovereign. Now there was a crisis of sovereignty in the land, but he discovered the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Now notice when it happened. It was a time of national crisis. Are we in one? If you read your Durant Daily Democrat this morning, everything on the front page suggested a time of crisis, economic crisis, if, 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 at the best. Sorokin of Harvard University, sociologist, said we're in a time of crisis. People are not asking, are we moving to the left of center or to the right of center? They're asking, do we have a center? And he said the crisis is that we're seeing the breakdown of the ideal that has always underlined society. 
It was a time of personal crisis. Is that the case for you as you come here today? I suppose every moment, every morning, we wake to some kind of new challenge or new crisis. The debilitating illness of a loved one. If you've been where I've been this week, you've been in where, where people have, have experienced crisis, crises, the loss of a loved one, the rebellion of a teenager, some financial burden that's about to destroy you, every kind of crisis imaginable for every kind of person. And so you've come this morning not because you need an explanation for it or a defense of it. You do not need a quick fix to endure it. What you need this morning is a vision of one who is above the crisis, the supreme sovereign who rules over it. That's what we need. Oh, some glimpse of God. It seems somehow that if we can just get a glimpse of Him and His glory, that'll be all right. And I hear Him say, no man can see God at any time. It's what Moses wanted when he went to the holy mount. He had heard the voice of God in the burning bush. He had seen the Nile River turn to blood. He had tasted manna from heaven. He had watched as God hovered over them like a cloud in the daytime, pillar of fire at night. He had observed as the chariots of, Ahab, of, of Pharaoh had been annihilated in the, dead, in the Red Sea. But he wanted more. He wanted, he yearned, he craved that ultimate spiritual experience. He wanted to see God face to face. And God said to him, I can't let this happen, but I will put my hand over you and I will pass by. And so he put him on a rock, says the record, and put his hand over his eyes. And when he passed by, he took his hand away. And the Bible said he saw his back. In the Hebrew, it's his hindquarters. He saw his backside. And so great was that glorious vision that when he came down from the holy mount, the people were terrified and they had to put a veil on the face of Moses. Just the reflected glory of God, not the glory of his, the effulgent glory of his face, but the glory of his back. It seems that in these days of crises and emergency, personal and national, oh, what it would mean to us to get a vision, just a glimpse of it of His glory, of His being, of His nature. That wasn't all the vision. He said, I saw His train, the train of His robe, and it filled the temple. Now what we wear marks us out or gives us rank. If you see a scouter with his, with his uniform on, you know immediately he's a scout. It's a perfect illustration. What we wear marks our rank. If you see a guy in overalls, you think he's from Monday or some farm town, you know. I had a guy in my church one time, if he thought I had on a new suit coat, he'd run up, he'd run up to me, and before I had a chance to fiend him off, he'd grab and pull out the lapel, see where I got it. He wasn't too impressed, you know, when he'd see Kuppenheimers, you know, three for one or something like that. And, 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 and if, if he had on a new sport coat, and you say, hey, you got on a new sport coat, he'd, he'd flash the lapel, you know, heart shafter and marks, kind of set him apart, you know. Gave him a little rank, a little status. I'm told that when the Queen, Queen Elizabeth was coronated, was crowned, it took several pages to carry her train. It was a status, it's a status symbol. I've done a lot of weddings. Now I've had a lot of people talk about beautiful wedding gowns. I've, I've observed, that they'll, they'll, they'll say, did you see her wedding gown? Her train took up half the aisle. There's a kind of a status there, kind of a, kind of a rank there. And, and, and watch this. He said, I saw the train of his robe and it pushed out the walls of the temple. You know what he's saying? 
that this God who is above every God, this God who is absolute sovereign, Yahweh Adonai, is a regal, royal God. And His regality and His royalty literally dwarfs every other human monarch, literally overwhelms every other human being. He's so regal and so royal, everything else is dwarfed by Him. Amazing sight. Wasn't all he saw. He saw the seraphim. Now the seraphim are the angelic beings that were created for one purpose, to live in the court and serve the Lord. And he saw these angelic beings had six wings. With with two of those wings, they covered their faces. Even the angelic beings who were created by God to serve in the court of God could not look upon Him in His holiness. I mean, uh, Moses couldn't even see the front part of God. The people couldn't even look upon His reflected glory. These angels could not look upon Him. And with two, they covered their feet, symbolical. Their feet were symbolical of their creatureliness. They manif- it manifested, their feet manifested their earthboundness. How are we bound to the earth? By our feet. Now watch this. There are two interesting things that happened in the life of Jesus. I want to, you're still with me? I want to show you something parenthetically, just a moment. Two interesting things that illustrate this that happened in the life of Jesus. You remember one time, fifth chapter of Luke, the, 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 the fishermen, the disciples fished all night, and in the morning Jesus stood on the bank and he said, Hey boys, caught any fish? They said, We fished all night, hadn't caught a thing. He said, Cast your nets on the other side. Now I know what, I know what they must have thought. Here's this preacher telling us how to fish. I mean, we know this lake, every square inch of it. He's telling us where to fish, but they put their nets over on the other side and they caught so many fish, it nearly broke the nets. I know what you would have said. I know what I would have said. Lord, if you'll come back just about once a month and just, you know, tell us where to fish, we'll fish one day a month, the rest of the time we'll take off. That's what we would have said. You know what they said? They said, depart from us for we're sinful. In the presence of this Lord that had been their carpenter friend, their, their teacher, their rabbi, but in his presence they were all they, they were suddenly aware that they were creatures and he was God. They were mortal and he was immortal, and they were sinful and he was not. They said, Depart from us. The second time took place after his resurrection. Similar event, fished all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus on the seashore, fixing a little breakfast, called out, fellas, cast on the other side and you'll catch some fish. They did when they caught the fish. You know what Peter did? The Bible says that he put on his outer robe for he was stripped for fishing. Now they wore this long outer robe and underneath it they wore what was kind of like a night shirt that enabled them to move about. Instead of jumping in the water in his night shirt, when he saw the Lord there, resurrected from the dead, he said, he put on his outer robe and jumped in. Because to stand in the presence of holiness is to feel our creatureliness, our earthboundness, our sinfulness. We want to cover our feet. We want to cover our bodies. And with two, they begin to fly. That is symbolical of moving in service. Now to see this God. Watch it. Look at this. They saw, he saw this sovereign God in the throne above the thrones and this God was royal and regal and holy. Now the voice he heard was the voice of seraphim, of the seraphim. 
It was an antiphonal response. The Bible says that they sang to one another. You ever been in Texas Stadium? And on one side, they'll shout, Dallas! And on this side, they'll shout, Cowboys! And it just kind of echoes through Dallas uh, uh, Cowboy Stadium. That's what happened. Can you imagine going to church on Sunday morning, kind of nonchalantly, kind of drifting into church, and all of a sudden you see this throne above thrones, you see these seraphim flying everywhere, smoke filling the temple, they're covering their faces and their eyes and their feet, and all of a sudden you hear it like some gigantic echo, holy, 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 and it's just bouncing off the walls. Wow! Now, when you write in English, the way you emphasize is that you underline or you put an exclamation point after it. That's the way you emphasize. If you talk in English, if you talk, you, you, you emphasize with an intonation change or you, you know, raise your voice. I heard about this preacher. could have been me. Say he preached the same sermons. He just shouted in a different spot. You know, is gave a little different emphasis and a different word. If you're talking, you just you, you, there's an intonation change. But the Jews, watch this. But the Jews had a different way of emphasizing. When they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it. And that's why Jesus would say, "Verily, verily, I say unto you; truly, truly, I say unto you." It's the word, "Amen, amen," I say unto you. It's, it's emphasis. It's like underlining it. It's like putting an exclamation point behind it. And there are a handful of occasions in the Bible, just a handful, where a word was emphasized to the third level. It was, it was repeated to the third level or degree. Just a handful. But when you saw something repeated three times, it gave it superlative importance. It gave superlative power to that word. For example... In the book of Revelation, when the woes of judgment were pronounced upon the earth by the angel, by the eagle in mid-flight, he cried, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. In, in Jeremiah's famous temple sermon, he wanted to mock the people because they were, they were depending on the temple for their relationship with God. And he, in his temple sermon, in mock derision, he says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He wanted to emphasize that the people used that as their relationship with God. But nowhere, are you hearing me? But nowhere in the Bible other than this will you ever find any of the attributes of God repeated three times. There is no other characteristic of God that is repeated three times, lifted to the third level. It's of superlative importance. Now, I know it's wrong to take one attribute of God and pit it against another attribute of God because those attributes are the same, of course. But there must be something of superlative importance here. Holy, holy, holy. This God is transcendently separate. That's what the word means. This God is transcendently separate. They, they, it's like underlining it three times. It's like putting an exclamation point after it, two or three of them. It's like raising the voice to the highest shout. This God is transcendently separate. Angels couldn't even stand there in His presence. Angels couldn't even look on His face. 
This is the God you and I come to worship today. This, this kind of God. Now, what would happen to you if, if you had some kind of a vision like this? Well, the Scripture says that the foundations trembled. There was a recent survey taken among people as to why they didn't go to church. And the majority said, we don't go to church because it's boring at church. Were, were any of y'all in that survey? <laughs> Anybody? Did they ask you? Uh, oh. They said, they said we, we don't go to church because nothing happens there. I don't know whether you recognize the name Lim Barney or not. Now, Lim Barney is not... He did, not, he did not copy the Dead Sea Scrolls. He wasn't an Old Testament scholar. Lim Barney was an all-pro halfback in the NFL. And, and Lim Barney what used to say, if this don't turn you on, maybe you ain't got no switches. Now that, that's pretty, you know, that's not Dead Sea Scroll, but that's pretty good. If this, if you don't, if this don't turn you on, maybe you ain't got no switches. Now, if you come to this place, if you come to God's house and nothing happens to you, it may not all be God's fault or the preacher's. It may be that you don't have no switches. Let me tell you what happened here. Here are these foundations, these pillars, if you please, these inanimate objects, these dead objects, the, this martyr and, and marble, these stones in the presence of God were moved. They trembled. Now the time is gone and the sermon is halfway through. But I want to tell you what happened to Isaiah in conclusion. He cried, Woe is me. That's the Old Testament oracle in the negative case that means... God, your judgment must be upon me. They pronounced an oracle of judgment upon nations. No prophet, no prophet ever pronounced that oracle of judgment upon himself. He did here. He said, Oh God, let your judgment be upon me, for I am ruined. The word ruined in the Hebrew is a word that comes from the root word to mean disintegration. To integrate something is to bring things together in harmony. You integrate schools, races, you bring them together, together in harmony. Disintegration is to scatter, is to destroy, it's to, it's to break into pieces. Isaiah said, I am shattered. And it's interesting that there is an English word that comes out of the word ruin, just rises out of it like smoke. It's the word integrity. Now, Isaiah was a man of impeccable character. He was fit and fiddle as far as his moral integrity and character was concerned. He was a man of impeccable integrity. But he said... I am ruined. I am, I am shattered. My integrity is shattered. For all of a sudden, he stood in the presence of a holy God. And what people thought about him, 
and what people said about him. The integrity that he had gained in the eyes of his peers did not matter anymore because he knew what he was for the first time. He was unholy in the presence of a holy God. And that's what I want to happen in my life and in yours right now. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if we don't have any switches, we can't get turned on. You'll help us to realize that the reason we're not turned on by such a sight is because we've never encountered you in the first place. And I pray for those of us today who need just a glimpse of His glory, of Your glory. You'll give us that. We realize that we cannot see You. The pure in heart shall see God. And so we come today, Lord, to say, Lord, take away that which veils our vision of Your face, of Your glory, of Your will. And manifest today, not just ourselves, but your purpose and dreams for us. And let us be moved today by it all. God, help us to look beyond the empty thrones to the throne that's never empty. Look beyond the gods that are in our life to the God of the gods, who deserves to be absolute sovereign over all, because He is. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now, there are three invitations that every service ought to conclude with. The first invitation is an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior. This God is different. He's different not just because He is holy, But in holy love, He gave His Son. And that Son is our only redemption, our only salvation. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous flee to it and are safe. Would you come to Him this morning, if you've never been saved, to trust Him for your salvation? Perhaps to join the church, if God leads you to join our church are to come in the vision of who God is and who we are to a new understanding of where we ought to be in our own walk with God, our own life. I pray that for you. I invite you to come as we stand to sing.